You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. A couple weeks ago, during South by Southwest, Todd and I were invited by uh, Will and Evan to attend an event that their company, Abel, was hosting down at Hops and Grain Brewery, a great event uh, in which they had Mike Maples Jr. and uh, Josh, who's the guy who runs Hops and Grain Brewery, in a dialogue about entrepreneurship. And lots of good insights, but the thing that kind of kept coming up was, you know, Mike put it this way, he said, you know, before, uh, a good product wasn't enough. Like, you had to tap into the right kind of marketing streams and have the dollars to get yourself your name and your product out there. But nowadays, because of social media and because the internet is what it is, you really just have to be legitimately awesome. And if you're legitimately awesome, people will find you. And we live in a city that bears that out, right? I mean, if you're just some random dude in some obscure part of town in a pickup truck, but you make a delicious taco, there's going to be lines. We're going to find you, you know? And so we see that all over the place in our city. And, and as I listened to Mike talk about it, at the end, Evan asked him, all right, parting shot. You got one thing to say to leave with these entrepreneurs. What is it? And what do you think he said? Be awesome. I mean, that's really what Mike had to say that day is you guys need, just need to be awesome. And in the context of entrepreneurship, it actually is pretty insightful and helpful because of those reasons, because people will find you if you're awesome. My concern in reflecting upon that and something that I feel in my own life is that what is true in the context of entrepreneurship and maybe some other circles has crept its way just into the popular conscience. It's crept its way into the way that you think and feel about your purpose in life and what it means to live a fruitful life, even as a Christian. Most of us feel the pressure to be awesome. A lot of you felt it as kids. Your parents drove you around from one activity to the next, from sports to music, and if you had money, you were in private schools and you had private tutors and private coaches, and it's because your parents loved you, but also because they want you to be awesome. Some of you are in your first or second jobs right now, and you feel the pressure. You work way too much, you hide your faults, always your best foot forward, and, and it's because you feel the pressure in that context to be awesome. A lot of you have been recently married, recently had kids, and you had all kinds of aspirations about what kind of husband or wife or parent you would be, and it just didn't take long for you to realize that you're not that. You're not as awesome as you hoped you would be in those things. There's so much pressure to be awesome. And you know what? It even exists right here, maybe especially right here. You come into a church like this, and you have a desire to like grow in your faith and to be a good Christian or to have it together, whatever it is, and you begin to look around at all these pretty people, and you think, oh, man, these people have it together. They're really on fire for Jesus, and you begin to feel less about yourself, and it's all just in comparison to your perception of the people around you and how awesome they are. Michael Horton wrote a book recently entitled Ordinary, and he's addressing this pressure in our culture to be awesome, and he says you can see it just in the use of our superlatives all the time, like everything is amazing, and whatever anybody is doing, they're always trying to take it to the next level, whatever that is. And, um, you know, there's those people that put exclamation points at the end of every sentence. You don't need to do that. Uh, he, he cited this article in The Onion, which is a satirical newspaper, but uh, very legitimate in its own right. They're tapping into this pressure that we all feel. Listen to The Onion. Long-time acquaintances 
confirmed to reporters this week that local man Michael Husmer, an unambitious 29-year-old loser who leads an enjoyable and fulfilling life, still lives in his hometown and has no desire to leave. Claiming that the aimless slouch has never resided more than two hours from his parents and still hangs out with friends from high school, sources close to Husmer reported that the man, who has meaningful, lasting personal relationships and a healthy work-life balance, is an unmotivated washout who's perfectly comfortable being a nobody for the rest of his life. The article cites a couple of old friends. I've known Mike my whole life, and he's a good guy, but it's pretty pathetic that he's still living on the same street he grew up on and experiencing a deep sense of personal satisfaction. (laughs) Additionally, pointing to the intimate, enduring connections he's developed with his wife, his parents, siblings, and neighbors, sources reported that Husmer's life is pretty humiliating on multiple levels. Husmer's ordinary life is debt-free, and he's perfectly content to stay put while many of his high school friends go off to the bright lights and big cities. He doesn't care about impressing total strangers every day as he climbs the corporate ladder when he can invest in the lives of those closest to him. He doesn't have a thousand friends on Facebook, just a close family and circle of friends. His cousin says, I'm just glad I got out of there and didn't end up like Mike. The last thing I'd ever want to have is a loving family nearby to feel a sense of pleasure when reflecting on my life and be the big failure that everybody runs into once a year when they visit home. It's the onion. It's over the top. But it's true, isn't it? Being ordinary is so uninspiring these days. In a culture that's obsessed with getting attention, with changing the world, now, being ordinary is lame. Nobody wants to be ordinary. No, nobody has a bumper sticker in their car that says, my son is an ordinary student at Mills Elementary. You know, you know those 26.2 stickers? I want one that says three, and then in parentheses it says walk, run. Yeah. But, but nobody's broadcasting that stuff. That's the guy you hate on Facebook, the guy who broadcasts, you know, his normal life. Because we're not interested in ordinary. We want to see awesome And so we spend so much of our time and energy trying to find things and moments in our lives that classify as awesome so that we can tweet them and Instagram them and Facebook them. And Michael Horton says, this pressure to live up to our social media profiles is one of the newer versions of salvation by works. Do you guys feel that pressure? I do. Some of you are right in the thick of it, just chasing the awesome Some of you have just given up on it and gone the other direction to where you have really, you're sort of apathetic about life. I kind of oscillate back and forth between those things. Just this week, I was having a coffee with an old friend, and in the midst of the conversation, he asked me, hey, what's next for you? And I didn't know exactly what he meant, like another latte, I wasn't sure what he meant. (laughs) And as we kept talking, I began to realize what he meant, because he would ask me, like, how often do you preach? I was like, about half the time, and He's like, well, what do you do the rest of the time? I was like, well, I, I meet with lots of people like I'm their pastor, you know. And he was like, all right. And I just began to realize that what he, what he was getting at was is that, you know, we sort of got the church planting thing under our feet, and I only preach half the time. And he was wondering, like, so, so now that you've got some freed up time, and they're like, what, what, what's next? What big project? What's in the future for you? And I, I was just like, uh, I don't know. I'm going to preach half the time and, like, pastor our people, I think. I mean, I felt embarrassed. I felt like a loser, like I didn't have anything exciting to say about what's next. And I know a lot of you get that question, what's next? What career, what what relationship, 
What gadget? What's next for you? And it's embarrassing not to have an answer. Some of you struggle with figuring out what the answer is to that question. And I think, even though it's an unlikely place, I think Romans 16, yes, that passage you just heard, is really helpful in answering that question. What's next? It's really helpful for us to figure out what does it mean as Christians to be awesome? In this chapter, Paul is, is winding things down. He, he's, he's given these glorious proclamations of the gospel like you'll find nowhere else. It's easy to forget that this is a letter, actually, you know, to real people in a real place. But as you get to chapter 16, you're quickly reminded of that. There's 27 names of specific people here, not to mention the people that are included in reference to them. There's one dominant command, and it is to greet these people and to greet one another. It's a very warm, personal section of this letter. And in some ways, this is Paul's parting shot. This is the end of the interview where Evan Bear says, one thing, Paul, what are you going to say? How are you going to wrap it up? And this is how he does it. And as I think about wrapping up our series in Romans, which we've been doing for a long time now, uh, I think, okay, this is my uh, parting shot. I got one thing. And if that's the case, here's the one thing. You ready? Jesus is awesome. And the deeper that belief goes into your soul, and the more pressing it is on your conscience, the more you will understand what it means to be truly awesome. Two things in this list of names that point us to this reality of Jesus being awesome. Here's the first thing. These people live ordinary lives for the most part. When I look at this list of people, there, there are some people of note, as is always the case, but for the most part, this church and the church throughout history and our church is a whole lot more Rufus and Olympus and Hermes than it is Paul and Timothy. One of the interesting things I see in this list is the diversity of people in it, men and women, slaves and people of high society, Jews and Greeks, and it just screams to me that there are no limitations on who can live a fruitful life for God. Whatever your race or or social status is, whatever your income level or your job, whatever you have or don't have, none of that keeps you from enjoying God and glorifying Him. Not one thing. Even if nobody ever notices you or anything that you do, you can still live an awesome life. In fact, in the kingdom of God, being unnoticed is actually the pathway to the most awesome kind of life. See, in our culture, it's all about making a name for yourself. But in the kingdom of God, it all gets flips upside down. So like God shows his power through our weaknesses. It's the meek that shall inherit the earth. It's the last who are first. It's what's done in secret that gets the most attention with God. The kingdom is totally different than the way we think about it. So these names are here not because they represent some extraordinary accomplishments. They're here to remind us that the mission of God is most normatively accomplished through quote-unquote normal people doing normal stuff. As far as I can tell, None of the people that Paul greets in Rome are vocational Christians. They all are just members in this church. They have jobs and families and all the usual stuff. 
And yet, some of them do some pretty remarkable things. Phoebe, who I think is most likely a single woman, has served in some sort of diaconal role, not only for Paul, but for many, and he's entrusting her with this letter to take it to the church in Rome. Several of them, Paul says, have worked hard for the church. One couple risked their necks to save Paul's life. Another couple had served time in prison for their faith. Some pretty remarkable things in this list. But more than any of that, more than anything that these people had done, there's one thing that Paul mentions that stands out way more. And that is that they're in Christ. It's the most awesome thing he can say about them, is that they're in Christ. And listen, who you are is way more important than what you do. In fact, it's who you are that makes what you do meaningful and powerful. Being in Christ is not just some label that Paul's with around. It's, it's, it marks a total change of identity. Yes, these people live ordinary lives, but in the midst of their ordinary lives, they are also a royal priesthood. Prophets and kings on this list. They're missionaries. Not in the sense that we think about it, like vocational full-time they get paid, but at the level of their identity. And so, wherever you live or work or play, if you're a Christian, you've been sent there as God's ambassadors, as missionaries. And so everything that you do matters. Mission is not primarily doing more stuff or something else than what you're doing. It sometimes can mean that, but normatively mission means doing what you already do with more gospel intentionality. So it's not just doing what you do, it's it's being thoughtful about how and why you do it. And missionaries think that way. Uh, In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. Eating and drinking, that's about as ordinary as it gets. And Paul is saying, yes, even that can be done for the glory of God. Life, life is ordinary. And, And it seems that God has set it up this way. Has it ever occurred to you that God didn't choose to, like, execute the plan of redemption like that? or even over the course of several hundred years or a century, but rather he has chosen to take his time to work through the ordinary people and the ordinary stuff of life over centuries of time. Why would God do it that way? And I think the assumption we have to make is that there's something about doing it that way that gives God the most glory. It just doesn't seem when you read the Scriptures that God's in a hurry. And to be honest, it drives some of you absolutely bonkers. Because we are a people who want to fix things now. We want to change the world now. We want a God who will get with it and get on our pace and not be so slow about things. But perhaps God is saying to us, we who are always thinking about what's next, perhaps God is asking us to consider just how he's at work and where we are now and what we have right now. Some of you get so caught up in your dreams about the future that you neglect just to do the very little things that God's asking you to do now, even though Jesus said, it's only he who is faithful in a little that I give more to. 
And this is how we get pointed to Jesus being awesome. Our awesomeness is about taking or getting glory from the world and from people. But Jesus is glorious in and of himself, and his awesomeness is such that he bestows glory on the ordinary things of this world. So that whatever we do, whether we eat stuff or drink stuff or run or work or play, we can do it for the glory of God. Uh, Michael Horton cites another article written by Trish Harrison Warren that illustrates this reality. Trish was raised in a wealthy evangelical church. She writes, I began to yearn for something more than a comfortable Christianity focused on saving souls and being a generally generally respectful Republican Texan. I can't say it, and I don't want to be it, so it goes together. She says, I was nearly 22 years old and had just returned to my college town from a part of Africa that had missed the last three centuries. People referred to me as the radical one who wants to give her life away for Jesus. It was meant as a compliment, and I took that, but it also felt like a lot of pressure, because in a new way, I was uncertain about what being a radical person and living for Jesus was supposed to mean for me. Here I was back in Africa needing a job and health insurance, toying with the idea of dating this guy in law school who was not so radical, and unsure about how to be faithful to Jesus in an ordinary life. I'm not even sure I knew if that was possible. She goes on, now I'm a 30-something with two kids, living a more or less ordinary life, and what I'm slowly realizing is that for me, being in the house all day with a baby and a two-year-old is a lot more scary and a lot harder than being in war-torn village in Africa. What I need courage for is the ordinary, the daily everydayness of life. She says, caring for a homeless kid is a lot more thrilling to me than listening well to the people in my home. Giving away clothes and seeking out edgy Christian communities requires less of me than being kind to my husband on a normal Wednesday or calling my mom back when I don't feel like it. She remembers in college, we were challenged to impact and serve the world in radical ways, but we never learned how to be an average person, living average lives in a beautiful way. Finally, she refers to a new monastic community house that had a sign on the wall which read, everyone wants a revolution, nobody wants to do the dishes. And Tish says, my life is rich these days with dirty dishes and short on revolutions. She goes to a church full of older people with normal jobs in a normal middle-class white suburban neighborhood. But over time, she's come to appreciate this community, to see their faithfulness to Jesus, their commitment to prayer, their generosity to people around them, all of it unimpressive, unmarketable, and unrevolutionary. And each week, she says, we gather as average sinners and boring saints around an ordinary bread and wine, and Christ himself is with us. She closes, who knows, maybe at the end of days, a hurried prayer for an enemy, a passing kindness to a neighbor, a budget meeting on a Thursday night, maybe these will be the stories of revolution that God is making all things new. My burden for us as a church, because, listen, I know we're young, we're ambitious, we're competitive, we're eager. We, we want to be awesome. I know that. 
But my burden for us is that we would not get lost in the chase for awesome. That we wouldn't pursue it in such a way that we would miss the very kingdom of God at hand right in our ordinary lives where Christ is with us. That's the first thing, this list of people. It points us to just ordinary lives, and it's in the ordinary where God is so often at work. But you have to ask the question, why is that? Why is God so often at work in the ordinary? And that gets us to a truth that uh, we must not miss, and that's this. These people's lives are ordinary, but there are no ordinary people. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, says it this way. And why would you want to say it any other way than the way that C.S. Lewis has said it? It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter, but it is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud are broken. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be tempted to bow down and worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet only in nightmares. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations, and it's in light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, our friendships, our love, our play, and our politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal, C.S. Lewis says. See, when, when we say something is awesome, um, we just simply mean that we're drawn to it. So I, I think Sufjan Stevens is awesome. been listening to Lowell and, and Carrie, I think that's the name of the album, like all week. It's awesome. I'm drawn to his music and just his whole thing, all right? I think Houndstooth Coffee is legitimately awesome. That's why I found it. I think everything about the Veracruz taco truck, what's going on inside, what I'm eating, all of it is awesome. Right? I love that place. And that's what I mean. I just mean I'm drawn to those things. I think they're awesome. And in our own pursuit of awesome, at the core of it is really a desire for people to be drawn to us in some way. And so either way you look at it, it just shows you that the way that we think about awesome is really about what what we or what others produce. And what C.S. Lewis is saying is that every person you meet has a certain kind of glory, a certain kind of awesomeness that has nothing to do with what they produce, but is rather about their very nature as eternal beings. When Paul writes this list of names, it's not like he's accepting an award and, you know, he's, he's thanking all the little people that made him great. No, Paul is highlighting the nature of these people, that there is not an ordinary one among them. Look how he describes them, these people who you've never heard of. He calls them sisters, brothers, servants, saints, patrons, fellow workers and fellow prisoners, beloved, approved in Christ, elect. He says Rufus' mom has also been like a mom to him. 
It's the language of love. Notice how Christ-focused these relationships are in verse 2. He says, welcome Phoebe in the Lord. Greet Priscilla and Quilla, my fellow workers, in Christ. Epinetus, the first convert to Christ in Asia. That's awesome. Verse 7, Adronicus and Junia, they were in Christ before me. Verse 9, Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Apelles, verse 10, who is approved in Christ. And Rufus, chosen in the Lord. The most awesome thing that Paul can say about these people, the most extraordinary thing about them is that they are in Christ because that is legitimately as good as it gets to be in Christ. John Piper says, this is how gospel-saturated people talk about their friends. The gospel gives us a beauty and a security and a power that we could never have imagined getting or achieving on our own. And at the same time, it causes us to care less about status and achievements than we could have ever imagined caring. Because in the gospel, in the death, or life, and the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. When we believe in Him, we are united with Him. And so, God takes off the pressure to be awesome, because Christ has been awesome in our place. And He lays upon us only the burden of our neighbor's glories, because the gospel frees us to stop living for ourselves and to start living for others. That's how we glorify God in this world. I don't know if you've ever seen a film series called Deodox. Uh, it's a couple guys who have like a film company, and they did this side project. Uh, they've moved here to Austin. They used to come to Providence. We were not awesome enough. Um, but they, this Deodox film series is fantastic because it, it chronicles like little four or five minute videos of just people that nobody's ever heard of and their lives and how they live them for the glory of God. You find that these, these people are extraordinary, and it's because of their way that they see other people around them. Uh, one such video was of uh, Robert. Robert used to work in the ER. He was making a good living, and he began to see, coming into his practice, a number of uninsured patients. And he recognized that a lot of them were his neighbors, like some of them literally people who lived next to him. They were barbers and sawmill operators, people who worked at convenience stores and mechanics. And he had to see these people every day who he knew he could, he could treat more compassionately and more cost-effectively in another, in another setting. He said, I felt like basically, even though I was working in the ER, I was walking around them and not being a neighbor to them. And so Robert decided to start an ER clinic uh, called Patmos Emergent Clinic to provide care for the uninsured. Most of the people coming into his, his uh, practice don't have insurance. And, you know, he talks about how God uses the foolish things to shame the wise, and there's nothing more foolish in the healthcare industry than seeing uninsured patients, and that's basically all he does. He said a lot of people thought he was crazy, and, and there's been struggles. He's lost a lot of income. He's noticed that his skills are deteriorating because he's not in the ER all the time. Uh, he doesn't have money to pay for his kid's college, and he says, sometimes I, I wonder if it was worth it. And then at the end of the article, he says, it's been worth the risk. I think, because I'm, I'm afraid of the type of person that I would have become had I continued to do what I was doing. More calloused and more hardened and willingly blind. I think the question that, that gets raised for me as I read about Robert is, do I, do I see the people around me? Is my life about them? 
And don't hear me. Don't get this wrong. I'm not saying you need to go out and do something really incredible like Robert has done. That's not where it started for him. For him, it started just by paying attention and noticing the people around him and realizing the deep biblical call to see them as his neighbors, as people to whom God has sent Robert. And so I'm just saying, are you willing to begin to slow down, to notice the people around you, to see them and to say, God, how how can I treat them as my neighbor? And beyond that, are you willing to go wherever that takes you? in the power of the Spirit. How do we do this? How do we live our lives for others, but yet not make it all about us? Because you can do that. Well, that gets us to the final thing that Paul has to say, and that is that the gospel frees us to do this. There's a lot going on in this list of names. Uh, you got Phoebe. He's commending Phoebe to them. Uh, he's talking about greeting a whole bunch of people. He's warning them against other certain kinds of people. There's lots of names. There's lots of glorious people. We're wrapping up a letter in which Paul has talked about the, the glorious gospel and the glorious community of saints and the glorious mission. But now, here at the end, we get the one who is glorious above all. The name above all names. Look at verse 25. We've just run through 27 people, and now Paul says, Now to him. God is the final name on the list. And this book ends with a doxology. That's what these little verses are. That's just a word that means to ascribe a word of glory to God. All glory comes from and belongs to God. Everything glorious in this world, Veracruz tacos, up to people themselves, everything's just little moons reflecting the ultimate blazing fire of glory that is God Almighty. And that's the point of this doxology. Paul says, now to him, and at the end he completes the sentence, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. But look what Paul says about God in verse 25. The first thing in this doxology that he says is that God is able to strengthen you with the gospel. God's glory is manifest when he strengthens his people with the gospel. To live ordinary lives for the good of extraordinary people. How can we embrace the daily grind? How can we do whatever we do for the glory of God? How can we put selfish ambition to death and live for the good of others? This is how. God will strengthen you to do that. And he will strengthen you with the gospel. Everything else in this little doxology is an explanation of the gospel. Continue in verse 25. God will strengthen you with my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Paul thinks about the gospel as something that is this incredible, mysterious secret that was sort of kept for, you know how good it is to hear a secret? And Paul's saying this is the best secret of all the ages, Jesus Christ for the nations but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. And so our aim is to be immersed in the gospel, to know and trust the promises of God, to know firsthand this unhindered access that we have to him in prayer, to rest in Christ's work. 
Our aim is to truly believe that Jesus is awesome and that being in him is just as good as it gets. Because when those realities sink in, when we are saturated in them, we find immense strength to live our ordinary lives for the glory of God. When Mike Maples Jr. told that room of entrepreneurs to be awesome, it resonated with some of them. I mean, with some of them, it struck a chord deep down, and there was something in them that just cried out, yes, I was made for this, to be awesome. In that context, I'm really happy that that happened. But in this context, what about you? When Paul says now to him, the only wise God to whom belongs glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, is something in your soul screaming out that last word with him? Amen! Like, does it resonate? Does something deep inside you say, yes, I was made for this, to behold the glory of God in ordinary life and in every person that I meet? Everything that you've learned in Romans points to this application, to behold the glory of God in ordinary life and in every person you meet. Probably none of us feel that to the extent that we wish we did, if we're just going to be honest. And so what do you do? Because it's not something you can manufacture, not genuinely. Well, what you do is you look to Jesus. If the gospel is what strengthens us, then we look to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and his power at work in our lives. And right now what that means is that you come to this table and you look to this bread, which Jesus held up on the night before his death, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And you look to this cup, which Jesus held up, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And you come to this table with just the most ordinary stuff we could get our hands on. Jesus gave us this ordinary stuff so that we could realize the beauty and the majesty of what it means that he is here with us in them. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.